Welcome to Meals for Maturity, Bible talks to help you mature as a follower of Jesus, by Pastor Dom Fiocco. Welcome to another Bible talk from Meals for Maturity. Today we're going to continue our series in Esther. Now, I like preaching through books of the Bible, and basically letting God's Word speak for itself. And you see, by tackling books of the Bible, I'm not left as a preacher trying to work out what to preach on Sunday by Sunday. See, it's pretty simple for me. Last time was Esther chapter 3. So guess what? Today we look at Esther chapter 4. Now, remember how chapter 3 of Esther ended with the king and the prime minister feasting while the city of Susa is in turmoil, uproar about this royal decree announcing the death, the wiping out of the Jewish people. And we have in the Persian Empire around 480 BC, 400 years before Jesus, a Jewish queen who's married to a Persian king. But she, Hadassah or Esther, has kept secret her heritage, her family tree. And we also have Esther's relative, I've been calling him Uncle Mordecai. He's refusing to bow down and pay homage to the prime minister called Haman. And so chapter 3 ends with this tension boiling or bubbling away. What will happen next in this drama-filled story in our Bibles? Well, chapter 4 I've called D-Day in the Palace. It's Decision Day. Now, before Jen reads chapter 4 to us, I want us to be aware of a, of a series of contrasts between chapters 3 and chapter 4. Chapter 3 of Esther is all about how the non-Jews react to a threatening situation when Mordecai doesn't bow down, doesn't bend the knee to Haman. Chapter 4 is all about how the Jews react to a threatening situation, for the Jews are about to be annihilated, about to be wiped out. Chapter 3 is all good news for non-Jewish people. Chapter 4 is all bad news for Jewish people. Chapter 3 ends with feasting. Chapter 4 ends with fasting. So you see these differences, these contrasts across the two chapters. But there's also similarities. In both chapters, chapters 3 and 4, the main action begins at the king's gate but ends in the corridors of imperial power. In both chapters, the main players seek royal power and then dictate what should happen. And in both chapters, the well-being of royalty is being threatened. So let's hear chapter 4 read to us now. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him 
and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Chapter 4 begins with uh, Mordecai finding out about the royal edict to destroy the Jews. And I don't think this is just limited to the Jews in Susa or in Persia. No, this is an empire-wide decree. So even the returned exiles back rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, even they will fall under this dark cloud of extermination. Interestingly, in chapter 4, verse 3, there is deep mourning and there's tears and there's wailing and there's fasting, but sadly there's no mention of prayer to God. So usually across the Old Testament, when you get these words grouped together, you find the words prayer or repentance attached to them, but not here in the book of Esther. Mordecai isn't exactly a godly model of Old Testament sainthood at this point in time. He is, however, a good model of phoning an influential friend when in times of trouble, for he calls the queen for help. Now Esther hears, Queen Esther hears about Mordecai and his bad taste in dress sense, and so she does the womanly thing and she sends him a bright new wardrobe, hopefully to get him out of his sackcloth and rags and to cheer him up a little bit. But when the clothes are refused by Mordecai and sent back, well then Esther figures there must be something wrong here. So she sends her servants to investigate. And then there's panic in the palace. Back and forth the messages go between Esther and Mordecai. And verse 8, Esther gets a copy of the royal edict uh, detailing the day of murder for the Jewish people. And she also gets instructions from uh, Mordecai to reveal her Jewish identity to her husband, King Xerxes. Now, at this point, Esther stalls a little, saying that well, things aren't too crash hot between her and her hubby. I mean, Mordecai, he hasn't called me for a whole month. 
I might need that special beauty treatment from chapter 1 again. Mordecai, I haven't been in, in the bed of King X-Men for ages, and I don't think he's been sleeping by himself. And besides, even the Queen just can't rock on up to the King without an appointment. That would most certainly mean death. Remember, this is the guy who got rid of the last Queen, so he can easily repeat that again. And so we read of Mordecai's response and then Esther's decision. I'm sure you've had moments in your life when you are called to make a significant decision and, and stalling or putting off that decision is not a wise move. You, you just have to decide one way or another. I like what General Norman Schwarzkopf, remember Stormin Norman, uh, he has this to say about decision making. He says, the truth of the matter is that you always know the right thing to do. The hard part is doing it. I think that rings true for many of our decision-making moments. Well, in chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, we find Esther now in decision day mode. And the challenge comes from Uncle Mordecai in verse 14. Esther, if you keep silent about your Jewish bloodline, if you don't mention your Jewish heritage to the king, then relief and deliverance will arise from another place. And who knows whether you have come into this kingdom as queen for such a time as this. It's a stirring speech, and, and perhaps here is the closest we have of Mordecai expressing some faith, some trust in God's unseen hand of deliverance. Is Mordecai effectively saying, Esther, if you remain silent, if you continue to live as a pagan in Persia, then God will use some other means to bring about his covenantal promises. He will fulfill his purposes through other means. He has done so in the past. He can do so again. I think, I think Mordecai is pointing us to the unseen hand of God here. Winston Churchill uh, probably had the story of Esther in mind when he made his stirring speech about what he saw uh, happening or about to happen in Eastern Europe after World War II. This is back in 1949 and he could see the rise of communism happening. And so he said this, I do not believe that any people, sorry, I don't have his accent, but you can imagine it, can't you? I do not believe that any people can be held in thrall forever. The machinery of propaganda may pack their minds with falsehood and deny them the truth for many generations of time, but the soul of man, thus held entranced or frozen in a long night, can be awakened by a spark coming from God knows where. And in a moment, the whole structure of lies and oppression is on trial for its life. People in bondage need never despair. And of course, history shows us that it took until 1989 for that spark from God knows where to awaken. And I'm drawn to the events, especially in East Germany, where we read of, or we know, that Christian people were praying that the walls of the Iron Curtain would come tumbling down. And that's exactly what happened to the Berlin Wall. So Mordecai here is appealing to Esther, for Esther to realise that perhaps she is the spark that God can use to rescue his people. That perhaps Esther is in the royal court for such a time as this, not just to preserve her own life, but the lives of all the people of Judah. And from this point on, Esther actually changes her tune. 
Up to this point in the drama, Esther has been passive, doing what she's told by others, especially by Mordecai. But now she is the one who actively takes charge. She will start to actually tell Mordecai and others what to do. It seems Esther has moved from this point from being a, a young woman making compromises to a mature queen now giving the orders. I don't know if you're a fan of the TV series The Crown, but if you are, you might remember early on in Queen Elizabeth's reign, or was it Claire Foy? No, no, it was the Queen. Uh, she's, a, she's a young woman in her 20s, and she's been meeting regularly with the Prime Minister, and at this point in time, the great Winston Churchill, I mentioned him before, basically the man has led Great Britain to defeat Nazi Germany, but Winston Churchill has not been keeping, has been keeping a secret rather about the state of his poor health before the Queen. Actually, we learned that, that Winston Churchill's had a stroke and he's kept that silent before the Queen. And so the Queen asks Winston Churchill directly, is your health better now? It is, the Prime Minister replies. And then the Queen says, good, but is it sufficiently better? Is it fit for office better? I would ask you to consider your response in light of the respect that my rank and my office deserve, not that which by my age and gender might suggest. You see, it was a crowning moment, pardon the pun, crowning moment for this young queen. It was a real turning point in Queen Elizabeth's leadership of a nation. Well, that seems to be the case for Queen Esther here, right at the end of chapter 4. So she calls for a fast among the Jews to take place for three days. And she even gets her royal court of young women servants to also fast. But sadly, once more, there's no mention of prayer accompanying this time of fasting. I think its absence from the drama speaks loudly. There is still a long way to go for Esther and Mordecai. In the end, Esther says, OK, I will approach the king Though it is against the law, but if I perish, so I will perish. It really is an act of courage on Esther's part at this point, and one for which we can actually praise God for. And notice how chapter seven, uh, chapter, uh, this chapter ends in verse 17. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. One writer sums it up nicely. Uh, he writes, the sole hope for the Jews lies in the hands of a young woman whose life up till this moment had been devoted to beauty treatments and the royal bed. Well, we'll stop there. And again, we'll let the tension just boil a bit more and we'll pick things up next time at chapter five. But I want us to think about why the narrator across the story of Esther uh, wants us to know a little bit about the family trees of both Mordecai and Haman. You see, throughout the book of Esther, Mordecai is described as the Jew. We keep being reminded of this in chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, uh, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And we also get reminded that Haman is the enemy of the Jews. Chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 10. But the author gives us a little bit more detail, which might actually just answer the question as to why Mordecai previously refuses to bow down to Haman. 
and so cause all this drama in the story in the first place. You see, back in chapter 2, verse 5, we're introduced to Mordecai. He's the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we read that Haman is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And then we're told that family tree in chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 8, verse 3, verse 5 of chapter 8, chapter 9, verse 10, chapter 9, verse 24. This fascination with the family tree history doesn't make a lot of sense in the book of Esther until we read or we learn about what's happened previously, hundreds of years ago, back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now in 1 Samuel 15, we read that King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Kish, didn't exactly see eye to eye with the Amalekites and their king named Agag. Now the Amalekites had attacked the Israelites as they escaped from Egypt. And as a result, God wasn't too pleased with the Amalekites. So God commands King Saul of the Israelites to wipe out the Amalekites and not spare anything. I've said before, we're not quite sure where the Benjamites fit in. Well, anyhow, unfortunately, Saul rewrites the rules of God and he spares a few choice sheep and cattle and a certain king named Agag. Now, God is not too pleased with King Saul disobeying God's command. And eventually, in the story, this leads to Saul's, King Saul's downfall and his place is then taken eventually by King David, or David, who then becomes King David. Now, in the book of Esther, it seems that this family feud uh, that started back in 1 Samuel 15 between the descendants of Saul, or Kish, and the descendants of Agag, is rearing its ugly head once more. You see, Mordecai would not be too happy knowing the reason that his, in his family tree it, they lost the kingship of Israel was because of a certain Agagite. And Haman would be none too happy knowing that most of his family tree was wiped out because of a certain son of Kish. I think this is what is actually behind the author focusing our attention so much on their family heritage. But I think this hostility between these two guys is actually pointing us further back than 1 Samuel 15. I think we can go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, where we read this. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. You see, since the tragic events of the rebellion of mankind against God's command way back in the Garden of Eden, the whole Bible story presents us with these two family trees, two lines. There's hostility, there's enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And as we read through the Old Testament story and the New Testament, we keep getting reminders of this hostility through the whole Bible storyline. The seed of the serpent, this, this enmity, might look like a pharaoh, in, in Egypt, in the book of Exodus. Or this seed of the serpent might look like the Philistines or the pagan god Dagon or the giant Goliath in 1 Samuel. This enmity 
might look like King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, or the Edomites, or the Moabites, or Balaam. You get to the New Testament. This seed of the serpent turns up in King Herod, remember, in the Christmas story, as he tries to actually murder the seed of the woman, the, the baby Jesus. In John chapter 8, Jesus points us to actually see the Pharisees as children of the devil. And then even in Judas and his tragic betrayal of Jesus, we're seeing this hostility, this enmity happen once more. You get to the last book in the Bible and the, and the, and the story of the city of Babylon represents this hostility against God's people. And certainly here in the story of Esther, Haman represents all that is hostile against God and God's people. Haman is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And Haman is giving us a cosmic picture of a world opposed to God and his people and his kingdom. And in this disordered world of sin, there will be hostility and envy and jealousy and slander and hatred and malice and persecution and even murder against God's people. And behind all this, we're told in the scriptures, is the work of Satan. Surely the gospel events concerning the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus remind us of that truth and the hostility that's present ever since Genesis 3.15. So at one level, the arrival of Haman in the book of Esther should not surprise us at all. I mean, since Genesis 3.15... There's always been forces, especially people, who are opposed to all that belongs to God. There's always been forces attacking God's people. And even though the devil is not mentioned in the book of Esther, he too is very active in this drama. I mean, Haman doesn't quite have horns and a red cape, but Satan doesn't need that outfit to do his sinister, diabolical work. And so for us, as God's people redeemed in Christ Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised at the opposition that comes our way from identifying with Jesus the Jew. I mean, we shouldn't be taken aback when the world laughs or mocks or ridicules Christian ethics. We shouldn't be saying, oh my goodness, why doesn't the world love us and what we're doing and proclaiming? For if you know Genesis 3.15, and if you know the story of Esther, well, opposition to God's people is par for the course. And if you know Genesis 3.15, and if you know the story of Esther, you'll also know that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, Romans 16, verse 20. And that Colossians 2 reminds us that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities, including the Hamans of this world, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, reminds us that through death, Jesus has destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. You know, a few hundred years after Haman comes along, another Jew comes along, Jesus of Nazareth, and this time he says, I will perish for the salvation of my people. I will perish but the decisive blow against Satan and his enemies will be delivered. The serpent's head will be crushed. And after three days, victory will come to the resurrected one and to all who belong to his kingdom.
And for that, my friends, we can rejoice and thank God. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a world full of Hamans, we know that Genesis 3.15 remains a rock-solid fact and that through the death of your son, he has crushed the power of the devil and his army. And even when we come up against opposition and antagonism against our Christian faith, we know that the victory has been secured. We know that the victory is ours if we continue to place our trust in the serpent crusher, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.